Union, a missionary couple was arrested and jailed because they were Christians. They were in prison for many years, more than a decade, and they lived that entire time in adjacent cells, a wall between them. They didn't see one another the entire time. Their only communication was they both had rocks and they would knock on the wall of the cell. Can you imagine for more than 10 years being alone in an isolated cell, your only way of speaking to your loved one, knocking a rock against a wall? This was the only communication they had while they were in prison. I just can't imagine how incredible the grief is people have gone through for their faith. But life is filled It's filled with grief. A young couple struggles just to pay the bills. An older couple works through the difficulties of health issues or maybe to themselves or their brothers and sisters. A Christian teen faces big life decisions about college and career and a future spouse. And that's just part of the ebb and flow of life. That's not even the grief part. I haven't gotten to the grief part yet. These don't become serious until life is threatened or career is jeopardized or a seriously misguided choice is taken. And then there's the complicating factor of our own sin and the sin of other people. And you add all this together and it's just no wonder so many people are grieving today. I wonder if you remember the difference between disappointment and grief. Grief is an acute pain a loss of something dear and precious, a deep distress, greater than disappointment. It's disappointing to lose a job. It's grief if you're fired for something you didn't do. It's disappointing to have relationship problems in your marriage. It's grief when the marriage ends in divorce. It's disappointing when your child has socialization problems at school. It's grief when he comes home and you find out he's being bullied. What a blessing then to be reminded that God is always with us in our grief. But let me add to that. That God anticipates. He expects other believers to be with you too. Christians are commanded to encourage one another. To speak good words that make others glad sweet like a honeycomb, to provide comfort one to another, support and help for each other, even to sing songs when the spirits are down, to lift those spirits. One of my favorite poems written by Longfellow called The Rainy Day. He writes, the day is cold and dark and dreary. It rains and the Winds are never weary. The vine still clings to the moldering wall. Moldering means slowly decaying. But at every gust, the dead leaves fall and the day is dark and dreary. And then he writes, my life is cold and dark and dreary. He must have had a bad day. It rains and the wind is never weary. My thoughts still cling to the moldering past. But the hopes of youth fall thick in the blast and the days are dark and dreary. Then he writes, be be still sad heart and cease repining. Behind the clouds the sun is still shining. Thy fate is the common fate of all. Into each life some rain must fall. Some days must be dark and dreary. 
And that's true. But after I read this passage this week and I was thinking about Longfellow's words, this is what came to my mind. We all have rainy days, but I can hold your umbrella. Right? I can rejoice with those who rejoice, but I can grieve with those who grieve. And that's what I mean by holding the umbrella. Each of us will have times when the rain is just falling. And what a comfort it is to have someone come alongside and pop open the umbrella and stand next to us to keep us dry. When you're in grief, I can stand beside you and hold the umbrella. And when I'm in grief, you can hold mine. And that's what it means to live the Christian life. I, I, I was thinking about Elisha. You, you remember the story? There's a rich woman, and he's been helping her, coming to her village. And so she says, I'm going to make him a little room uh, on, the end of, on the edge of my house. They called it a prophet's chamber. It's actually where the expression comes from. People still do this today. The woman made a little room for Elisha, and Elisha would come every time he was going through the village. He would stay in that little room. And he said to her, I'd like to do something for you. And it came to his mind that she didn't have any children, and she'd love to have a child. And so he prayed for her, and she had a little boy. He told her, you're going to have a son. And a few years went by, and one day that little boy had a pain in his head. And the, the mother said, take him and put him on the bed. And she ran for Elisha. When Elisha heard what the problem was, he sent Gehazi, his servant, ahead. You'll get there faster than I will. Go ahead, see what's going on there. Comfort everybody, I'm on my way. And the whole story kind of ends. It's really quite amazing. This child who apparently dies, Elisha raises from the dead. And this woman in her grief comes to Elisha and says, I told you, don't, don't get my hopes up. You know, you know I wanted a child and I couldn't have one and, and you prayed and I have this child, but, but now it's grief upon grief because the child has died, the one for whom I hoped. You got my hopes up. And Elisha says, no, no, just be patient. I'm going to do something for you. He raises the child from the dead. My friends, that's holding the umbrella. I can't raise your children from the dead, okay? I'm not Elisha. But we all can stand beside one another in times of grief. I mean, it's a blessing to know God is with us. It's a greater blessing to know that while God is with us, God's people are with us. You see, trials can lead to grief. They put us into difficult situations. <clears throat> Here's David, he comes to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And here poor Ahimelech is just caught up in the conflict between David and Saul. He didn't get up that morning saying, how can I interject myself into this problem? He's just going about his priestly business. But this is because of Saul's aggression against David. If you go back in the text, you learn Saul is chasing him. He's trying to find David because he wants to kill David. And Ahimelech the priest is afraid at the meeting of David. And David, in verse 2, does something to compound the problem. It's interesting. Saul is the aggressor, but David is a liar. David lies to him straight out and apparently has no trouble lying to people. 
And he says to him, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm here on the king's business. I'm doing what Saul wanted me to do. You can relax, Ahimelech. It's really okay. I'm, I'm just doing what Saul wants. And poor Ahimelech, he's misled by David's lies, and he's caught up in this conflict. It, it's, it's like being in the middle of a, a whirlwind, tornado. And he wasn't there because of his own doing, but he's there now. And David is seeking Ahimelech's help in his flight from Saul. He needs bread for himself and his men, he says in verse 3. What's under your hand? Give me five loaves of bread. I need some food for me and my men. And and it's only hallowed bread that's there. And Ahimelech says, you know, if you're going to take the hallowed bread... There are certain standards that you have to meet. And he goes through what those standards are. And David, whether he's telling the truth or not, we really truly don't know. It makes me wonder because he's been lying up to this point already. And he needs the bread. People will do incredible things in times of desperation. Not only does he need food, he needs a weapon. He says in verse 8 to Ahimelech, Do you have a spear or a sword? I don't have one. I left in haste. And of course, he has Goliath's sword. I can't imagine how incredible that sword was. I mean, David had only held it one other time in his life. It was when he took it off Saul and took Saul's life with it. Uh, Goliath, rather. And then, and then it, apparently that sword had gone to this place in Nob. It was, it was held there. Uh, I don't think it was a museum. There were museums of, of a sort in the ancient world. Uh, you, t- from time to time, you can read in the Bible, it'll say, it is there unto this day. You could go and see it. Uh, Goliath's brother's bed, I think, was an example. It was a huge iron bed. And the writer of, of Kings says, you can go and see it. It's there unto this day. And so here is the sword of, Saul, uh, of Goliath. I keep saying Saul, but I mean Goliath. Here, okay. Here's the sword of Goliath. This is huge sword. And he, and he says to Ahimelech, I need a weapon. And so what sword is better than that? And he takes the sword. And he goes and he leaves. Now let me stop here and, and just mention that this is an excellent example of a trial. I mean, David is fleeing from Saul and he and his men need nourishment and they need a weapon. And that's a trial. In fact, it's a pretty significant trial. But it's not the trial where I want to focus our discussion. It just sets the stage for what is about to happen. Because this is kind of where we are so often in life. Trials come and go, right? I mean, someone wisely said, you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or you're about to enter into a trial. Some rain must fall, Longfellow wrote. And so that's what trials are. It's just part of life. But I think the trial here is a Himalek's trial. Ahimelech, and he may not even realize it fully. He may not be cognizant of what's actually going on, but he is entering into a real trial. In fact, it's going to get worse because trials come, yes, they put us in difficult situations, but letter B, they can be amplified by evil people. You go to chapter 22, and you find out about this guy Doeg at the end of chapter 21 or middle of chapter 21. It says he was there. Some reason he's, he's there in Nob 
And, he, and he's the chief herdsman who belongs to Saul. And in, in chapter 22 and verse 9, Doeg the Edomite answers Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob. And I saw what Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatub, did in giving him the sword and giving him food. Verse 10. Doeg shares what he witnessed between David and Ahimelech. He, he's, he's actually telling on David, as it were. He spied on David's interaction with the priest. And then he tells Saul what happened. And now Saul's angry. You get this sense beginning in verse 11. The king calls to Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. And they all come to the king. He calls them. He wants to know, what, what did you do? How did you help David? And he accuses the priest of conspiracy in verse 11 through 13. And he notes here what Ahimelech did, he considers to be a capital offense. Because while Ahimelech is saying, I was ignorant of the conflict that you had with David. I mean, he's your son-in-law. He was one of your generals. How in the world would I be aware that you want him and want his life? Saul unjustly orders his footmen. Some believe this may have included Abner, Abner's brother, one of his relatives, to murder Ahimelech and the priests. And Abner says, no, I won't do it. And I can imagine how terrible a trial is. Imagine how amplified it is when evil is introduced. I mean, it's a hard enough thing when you wake up in the morning and your car won't start. It's worse when somebody stole it, right? It's, it's a bad thing when you go to the dentist and you find out you need cavities. It's worse when two years later your dentist is on dateline and they're talking about how he gave people cavities so he could drill their teeth. Or he told them that he did. I actually saw a story about that. It made me scared of dentists for a while. I mean, how do you know, right? What they're doing in there. I mean, evil amplifies the trial. You, you add Doeg to the equation, it gets much worse. Because now it leads... To times of grief, let her see. The king says to Doeg, okay, you turn and fall upon the priest. And Doeg has no trouble doing this. <clears throat> it's very interesting. The rabbinical stories about Doeg and who he was. He was one of David's adversaries. Nearly lifelong. In fact, some people believe that uh, David has Doeg killed later on. They think Doeg, the, the, this is the Jewish rabbinical tradition, Doeg is the one who brings the news that Saul and Jonathan are dead. Somehow trying to use that to, to weasel his way into David's good graces. And you remember David says, fine, you, had, you, didn't, you, you, you didn't have any trouble lifting your hand against God's anointed. And uh, even though Saul killed himself, this guy, this messenger claims that he did it at Saul's command. And David has this man killed. The, the rabbinical view is that that's Doeg. Doeg is a fascinating character. He was actually considered to be an academic. He actually had a school and he taught people uh, philosophy and life and, and uh, some version of Old Testament teaching. 
He was a, really a fascinating man. And he's a herdsman. And he's one of Saul's own conspirators. Saul knows he can count on Doeg because he knows Doeg's character. Doeg is an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And he has no love and he has no loyalty for the Jews at all. And Doeg, I can say this, I believe, happily murders the priests and their families. It says here he murdered 85 of them. And there is so much going on here because the priests in Nob are the descendants of Eli, the priest, who's told his family will never grow old. Maybe this is part of God's judgment on Eli. But at the same time, Doeg is showing his evil hand. He murders the people of Nob. He, he, he destroys the town. He kills the women and the children and the babies. This is complete and total genocide. Some of you have seen the pictures coming out of Ukraine. What the Russian armies have been doing to the civilians. That's this right here. That's what Doeg does. And whatever the problem was, David running from Saul, it's nothing compared to the mass slaughter of civilians in Nob. And with this in mind, you can see how evil people amplify our trials into grief. A simple work conflict can become career-threatening. When I was in the Gulf War, I was living with a man who was a very hard man. He had been a drill instructor's instructor for 17 years. Drill instructors are hard people. He was in charge of making them that way. He was a hard man. Hard to live with. And one day he decided, I don't know why, I don't remember why specifically, but he decided he had it out for me. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, where you have somebody who, could, who can, in the moment, really cause you a lot of problems. That's what I found myself facing. And if you have that kind of experience, if you can identify with that, I can identify with you. It was very difficult. A work conflict can become career-threatening. A health problem can become life-threatening. Just like the evil dentists on Dateline, right? I mean, that's evil. And, and that's what we face because we live in an evil world. I guess I could ask you, who's your doeg? Some of you are in grief right now. You're going through the horrible conflict, the, the churning of your life. It just feels like everything's being upended. Like a giant rototiller is just kind of making its way through your life. Everything's being churned up, and you feel that way. It could be a jealous coworker. It could be a difficult relative. It could even be an angry neighbor. I've heard stories, even from church people, of real conflict with neighbors where you're afraid to let your children out of the house because of what your neighbors are doing. That's, that's grief kind of stuff. So what do we do about our doegs? Or I guess I should say it this way. How do we help those who are going through this situation? When we as a church identify people who are in that kind of situation, what do we do? Because this is really where the story turns. I really love what happens here. Because just as our trials can lead to times of grief, 
in recognizing this, I think we must provide companionship for those who grieve. This is where we come alongside them. Even as Christ and the Spirit sometimes comes alongside us, we come alongside them and we grieve with them. We don't just ignore them. Worse, we don't gossip about them. Rather, what we do is come alongside them and say, how can I help you? What can we do to help you in your time of grief? And I think this companionship means sympathizing with people in their grief. Here's one of the sons of of Ahimelech. He's named Abiathar. He gets away. Good on him, right? Doeg is murdering the people of the town. He's killing the priests. Maybe this young man is not old enough to actually wear a linen ephod. It could be that he's still too young to be considered a priest. He gets away. He's maybe a teenager, maybe a little older. He gets away. And he comes to David and he tells David the story that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. And he survives this genocide. And the author says he escaped the town. And I want you to realize something about this young man. He had just lost his entire world. I have never experienced loss like this. I mean, there's the old book written back in the 70s to junior hires. If God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? You know, we've all had those kinds of moments. This is nothing compared to this. His family is dead. His mother and dad have been murdered. The others in his town, his friends, his relatives, his companions, they're all dead. His home is destroyed, burned to the ground, or the rocks that made up the house have been overturned. And his livelihood, his hope for future uh, income and livelihood, it's gone. He was training to become a priest himself, most likely. That's now gone. Everything is, is destroyed. He's just lost his entire world. And he informs David. He tells of Saul's fury against Ahimelech. And David recognizes his own part in the conflict. I love what David says. I knew it. I knew it that day when I saw Doeg. I knew what was going to happen. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. You see what David is doing here? He is recognizing his own part conflict. Now, it may not be that the people who are suffering are suffering because you did something wrong yourself. But there is something really valuable when you can come alongside a person and say, I am sympathizing with you. It may be some something that you've gone through in your life that you can now sympathize with others. I, I have to tell you, every time we go through a conflict in our family of any kind, I, I often think in the back of my mind, I'll tell Becky from time to time, I wonder who later in life we're going to counsel and be able to say, well, I've been through that. I've had uh, young adults, because I teach seminary and even undergraduate uh, classes now, I, I get young adults outside the church who will call me on occasion and say, I'm having some problems. Can you help me? Teaching counseling classes, they figure you must be really good at this, right? And I've got to 
open up my big wisdom bag. This is kind of how they think of it. And I'm going to root through it and find this big pearl of wisdom. Here you go. This will solve all your problems. It doesn't work like that, but that's kind of how they're thinking. And I've had young adults, back, we've been sitting in the car driving down to Walmart, and I'll get a phone call, and it's uh, uh, one of my students saying, hey, I'm going on a date this weekend, and I'm having this real problem, and can you help me? And I'm sitting there trying to talk this student or former student through whatever crisis is in his or her life. It's something to be able to say, I've been through that. I've experienced that. I, I think the, the one that comes to my mind the most, and I don't, I don't want to make this emotional, but you hear stories of ladies who go through miscarriages, and I, and I, and I just know because when I talk to the older ladies and having lived long enough myself, this is pretty, actually pretty common. It, it happens to nearly every couple. But because it never gets talked about, when it happens to a young couple, they feel all alone like they've, this is terrible. We were going through this, and they just don't know that all the other ladies in the church are just going, yep, yeah, we've been through that yeah, four or five times. Yeah. And it's very hard. But it's really something when those older ladies can come around alongside the younger lady and say, we've been through this. It's difficult. God will help you. Get past this. And this is what I mean when I say, we, we, what David does here in receiving Abiathar in this way is the way we can help people who are grieving by sympathizing with them. But by recognizing the conflict that they're going through. I just got through the teen years with my children. I can now sympathize with all of you who have teenagers. I really can. And I'm really looking forward to sympathizing with my own children someday when they have teenagers. My, my parents would wish the old, you know, the old adage, I hope you get kids just like you. They would wish that. I don't wish that on my children. And I don't wish that on their children. I hope they do better. I hope they get better. Here David identifies with this young man. He says, I knew it. In David's mind, Doeg was not just the murder of Abiathar's family. He was his enemy too. And while it's true, you may not be in position to actually say, I know exactly what it is to go through what you're going through. I think you can say to people, if you're old enough, I also have been in grief. And this is what I'm talking about. Grieving with those who grieve. To come alongside. And I think even beyond that, if you look at the end of chapter 22, it's providing practical help. There's something really wrong with us if we just say to people who are hungry, go, be warmed and filled. Right? I have a rule now, and I, and I live by this. If somebody asks me for help or money, rarely will I give them money, but I will always offer them food. I'll say, if you want, I'll buy you a meal. I'll buy you a dinner. I was in New York City on our last missions trip, and a man was standing on the street corner, and he said, I'm really hungry. Would you give me some money? And I said, no, but I'll buy, I'll buy you some food. I'm about to walk in here to this bagel place and eat. Would you like to have a bagel with me? And he walked in, and I ordered for me and for Becky. 
we ordered, and then he ordered the most expensive bagel on the menu. <laughs> went, well, of course you did. That's fine. I was $17. It's okay. It's, it's just a little bit of money. But I was able to say, you know, we're helping this church right down the street here. I'd love for you to be able to get to know the pastor. I actually talked to the pastor and said, hey, this guy, he knew who the guy was. I said, listen, I just bought him some food. He's open here now. You know, go, go say something to him. It's just an opportunity to be alongside people, provide some practical help. And I think David does three things. He says, abide with me. Ab come live with me. David pro provides shelter for this young man. You, you can now, you have no place to go. You have no home. You have no family. Let us be your family. You're, you're going to have the mighty men as your brothers now. Come live with us. It's going to be a life of, of nomad, nomadic living. We're going to travel around a lot. You get to see a lot of the countryside, some of the caves. <laughs> but it'll be good. Come live with us. And I love that. That's pretty practical, isn't it? He doesn't just say, well, you know, boy, you're in a tough spot. You're in a bind. I don't know. Well, it's hard. I don't know what you do. He says, come live with us. We'll, we'll find you a, a donkey to ride, a camel, and you can ride around with us. Or you can run behind. But we'll make sure you're in the group. And then he commiserates. Fear not. He that seeks your life seeks my life. We're in the same bind. You're now one of us anyway. You don't even want to be one of us. You're one of us. Saul would love to kill you. Do you know what Abiathar does? Abiathar revealed to the world and literally to the world because it's now inscripturated for all time that Saul was a murderous man. We see Saul's real character coming out in this story. If you had any idea at the beginning of Saul's story that he's somehow a Christian, somehow in the Old Testament sense, you understand, somehow a follower of God, I want you to understand Saul's real character is being exposed. He is a murderous man. And David says, he wants to murder you now. He wants to murder me already. So come live with us. It's fine. And even as he's providing shelter, he's commiserating with him and he offers him protection. He says, come stay with me. He who seeks your life seeks my life. But with me, you'll be safe. I'll raise my sword to protect you. I'll stand up against those who stand up against you. That's the blessing, my friends. That when we have the doegs of our life, we have the Davids in our life. Those who actually will come alongside and provide shelter. When Becky and I were in Puerto Rico back in early March, she wanted to hike every mountain she could find. I'm, I'm thankful it was, you know what, now that I think about it, I'm thankful she hurt her leg afterwards, but if she'd hurt her leg before, it would have saved me a lot of difficulty. And now that I'm thinking about it, we can't, we can't hike up there, honey. You've you're got a broken leg. That's a shame. <laughs> that would have been... Ideal. We hiked to the top of this mountain. It's a rainforest. It's a, it's a really unique place on earth, actually. There's only three like it in the world. As hot as it was down by the ocean, it was cool and misty and really actually chilly where we were. 
And you get to the top of El Yunque and you, you begin to look around and, and you, it's, you can, when the clouds disperse for a brief moment, you can see the, the valley below you. It's, it's really quite beautiful. Well, we came down and I was tired because we had climbed up this mountain. Uh, my, I had blood streaming down my leg because I'd scraped it on a rock. Uh, part of the climb involved climbing up rocks. We, we, she says, there's a tower over here. I'd really like to see this tower. I had no interest in seeing this tower. It's a tower. You've seen a tower? It's a tower. A tower is a tower. She wants to see the tower. So she goes, she goes hiking off. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat my lunch. She'd already eaten. I said, I'm going to eat my lunch. And I'm just going to walk behind you. I may make it. I may not. I had no intention of going up there. But I had a raincoat. And she didn't. And I, I got up there, we got about halfway, I got about halfway and it started raining, it started raining really hard. And there was this old house, I guess it was, it used to be a house. And now they had kind of, they kind of dug it all out. So it was just a cement foundation with a roof over it. And I got up in there, there used to be a fireplace. It was obviously not in use. And I stood there and I'm standing there going, I sure hope she made it because it's pouring down rain, pouring. And I, uh, I stood under there for a while, and then I started feeling guilty. I've got the raincoat, you know. I've got I've got an umbrella, and I've got a raincoat. She doesn't have. She has a little jacket. I don't know how waterproof it is. So I think I I'm gonna have to walk up to that tower. <sighs> so I walked up to the tower. I put my hood on. I put my umbrella up, and I walk up to the tower. She's inside the tower having the time of her life. You hike up inside the tower. She's like looking out of the tower. Hey, down, you know, down there at me. Do you need my umbrella? No. Need my raincoat? No. Then I'm leaving. I'm going back down to the place I was and finishing my sandwich. I hope you don't get rained on. I don't care if I do. You know, fine. Good. Wonderful. At least we know where we stand. But you know, the whole time, the whole time, my, my desire was just to, keep her from getting wet. And my friends, that's what we do here. We help each other follow Christ to the glory of God. A church isn't a church until as a body of Christ, we begin actually to care for the body. You might be a finger on the body of Christ. You might be a toe on the body of Christ. Whatever body part you are on the body of Christ. My friends, when, when that part hurts, the whole body should hurt. And we should do everything we can to help. Practically speaking. Personally speaking. Even as David provides shelter and commiserates and offers protection. You come alongside and you pop open the umbrella. And even as you're saying, yes, into each life, some rain must fall. But I'm going to stand here beside you while the rain is falling and try to keep you as dry as I can. That's what Christ does. D David here is exemplifying our Savior. This is what the Lord does. The Lord comes and he, he came and he took on our own flesh so he could say, I, I know your pain. I can sympathize with you. And he stands beside us and he protects. 
and he provides. And this is our task. Who, whose umbrella are you holding today? Don't be a selfish Christian. Be willing to do whatever you can to stand beside your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Because that's the spirit that God wants us to have. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this story. It really is quite amazing. Um, there's so much intrigue here. It's so interesting, but so tragic and so terrible. Help us to be like David in the story, not like a doe egg. Help us not to compound the problems of others, to amplify their problems. Help us to try to alleviate them. Help us to have sympathy. Help us to commiserate. Before I finish praying, here's my application, my invitation for you. There are people in our church grieving. And either they're grieving now or they have been in grief or they're going to go through grief. Will you commit in your heart to be a David in their life and hold the umbrella for them? Listen, we have young ladies who do go through miscarriages. As the example I gave, some of you older ladies can be such a blessing. You can be such a blessing and provide that kind of comfort and relief to just say, I've, I've walked where the shoes where you were you walking now. I know what it's like. God will help you through it. It's hard. Some of you have suffered the worst grief imaginable. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, a loved one, even a mom and a dad. And now you have an opportunity, having walked through those fires, to walk beside others who are walking through those fires now or in the future. Here's what I want you to do. Just commit in your heart, Lord, I'm going to be that kind of Christian. I'm going to be the kind of Christian who holds the umbrella for other people. So when the rains fall, I can help keep them dry. Uh, I hope everybody would raise their hand to that. So I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hand. I just want you to commit in your heart that that's the kind of Christian you want to be. Not selfish, but selfless. Father, help us to do that. Help us to be like your son. who was humble enough to take upon himself the form of a servant, to be made in the likeness of men, and even to go to the cross, just so that we could be saved. Help us to learn what it means to come alongside others and provide companionship in their times of grief. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. Just go to prayer and commit this in your heart as she plays.